Namo tasa bhagavatu arahatu asma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavatu arahatu asma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavatu arahatu asma sambuddhasa Udang damang sangang namasami So when I, uh, I look around the world and I see the various things that I see, one of the things that I notice is, is that what we don't need more of is more greed that's uh, just based on obsessive uh, satisfaction of desire. Uh, we don't need more frustration and irritation and anger. We don't need more confusion. We don't need more divisiveness. We don't need more exclusionary narrow-mindedness um, we've got enough of that we probably have more than enough of all of those things and so looking at what we have that we don't want then it's it's natural for me to consider well you know what what do we want what is needed what is needed in the world right now and when I think in that way you know, my interest is to come and take something that's congruent and resonant with what feels true. And when I feel um, a place of care, of kindness, of love, it feels like that's on the right track. And when that care and kindness is not just a kind of marshmallow goo that's spread on top of reality in order to feel good, but based in a real clear seeing of what's going on, based in wisdom, then I feel my whole system is lined up and I feel clear, I can move forward. So, easy to say, not so easy to do. And why not? Because for most of us, there's a whole kinds of things that arise that are not necessarily based in kindness and care. We're based in wisdom. So we can have emotional responses and reactions to things that are just mm. frustrated or angry or jealous or competitive or, you know, we can feel embarrassed or ashamed and we feel defensive and we want to protect. And so in the middle of an emotional reaction what's needed. And for me, when I experience any kind of uprising of something that pulls me away from that sense of being able to rest and be still in my congruent, resonant understanding of what is true and loving and wise, then I need a time out to just drop in feel what's happening in my body, feel the resistance to what's going on, the movement of energy to move outward and to respond, and to let it all be known for what it is. So in that motion of bringing attention from an outward movement of wanting to react 
to an internal reflection of looking at what's happening, that itself is an expression of truth. That's the truth of the present moment. The truth of the present moment is is that it feels like this. It feels reactive. And as I track the reactivity in my own body and watch my muscles pull back and my breath get shallow and the sense of, of moving away from being grounded and the heart tightening and armoring, the sense of defensiveness, the sense of pulling back and making an, a me and a you, an us and a them, I can watch the way it feels. And as I am observant of what I am noticing, the observation process becomes a porthole. And that porthole of observing allows me to lean into the knowing of what's happening rather than the content of what is happening. And as I lean into the knowing of what is happening, there's no judgment. There's no sense of it having to be different than the way that it is. There's no sense of criticism. And when I relax the judgment and the criticism by leaning into the knowing, then my resistance to what is happening dissolves. When resistance dissolves, then there's much more capacity to be present with what's going on. When there's capacity to be with what's going on, there's much more resourcefulness and skillfulness in responding. So, I am not just one solid person. There's all kinds of things that can arise, and they can arise quite quickly and quite suddenly. I can in an instant feel really young, like I'm two or in another instant feel very competitive, like there's something I need to protect. Or in another instant can feel this flowing forward of wisdom and I catch myself out of breath. It's like, where on earth did that come from? It's not coming from a solid, separate me. But it flows. And it arises in accordance with conditions. And when I move with the conditions that are arising in a way that supports balance and relaxation and congruence with what I know to be true, it gives me more faith and courage to do that again. And when I move in response to... to the widget that just turned off. (laughs) When I respond to something that is competitive or jealous or fear-based or a sense that I need to protect something and fight something and separate me against them, I notice the result. And the result is is that it pulls me out of a sense of ease and well-being and relaxation. It 
increases the sense of me being here and you being there. There's us's and them's. And there's a, a world of polar, polarity and duality. And in that world of duality, there's a hunger to come back into union with wholeness. And so it, it stimulates this craving, longing, desire, and grasping for something that's going to help me get from here to there. So the choices that I make have a really big impact on the way that I feel and on what happens to the people around me. So if I feel, wake up in the morning and I feel not well or a little bit agitated because of something and I'm not watching the lack of wellness and the agitation, and that gets channeled into a communication with somebody about something that's totally different, it can be really impactful for them. And if I'm able to register I'm not feeling very well, and that I'm somehow a little bit out of sorts, and accept that, then the accepting of that means that there's less resistance to feeling it. When there's less resistance to feeling it, it means that it doesn't just flow out into the person or the people that I'm speaking to. And if it does, I have much more capacity of taking responsibility, acknowledging, and apologizing for it. first encountered the Dhamma, I heard about Deepama. Deepama is a, a woman who was born in Bangladesh and emigrated to Calcutta at the partition and had an extraordinary, extraordinary life. It was customary at that time for, still is customary in certain parts of India, for, for girls to be betrothed at a very young age. So I think she was married at the age of and her husband who was at that point 25 years old after they got married went to Burma to work as an engineer and she was living with her in-laws so you know a 12 year old Indian girl is a child you know and she's living in a house where all of a sudden she went from being a very much loved member of the family to something like a servant with people who really didn't have that much warmth or affection for her. And her husband was far away. And then her husband, I think she went to live with him in Burma. And when she was in her family with her mother and her sister, her mother and her grandmother, they taught her all the duties of being a, a wife in terms of 
how to care for a household and how to look after a husband. But they didn't say a single word to her about what marital relationships actually involved. She had no clue. And so her husband explained what that was all about and she was, she was mortally ashamed and embarrassed and horrified. And gratefully, he was a very kind man, very loving, and just gave her the time and the space she needed in order for her to feel warmth and affection and fall in love, and then for that part of being married to naturally unfold. But she never conceived children. And in Asia, for somebody not to conceive children is not just something that's worthy of grief, it's worthy of catastrophe. It's like the family structure was based on having children. So she had this enormous sorrow about not being able to conceive. And eventually, after like 20 years, she finally conceived a child and went from being persona non grata to being a mother, which is such an extraordinary um, place of honor and respect in an Indian culture. And that child died. And she was thrown into grief. Another child was conceived. And I'm not remembering the actual details. My brain is playing tricks on me. There were two children that died. And I don't remember exactly which order that they were born. But the second child that died was a, was a male child. And then she had another child, Deepa, who lived and was very healthy. So her husband was taking care of her, taking care of Deepa. And because her health started to collapse with the death of these children, she wasn't able to do a lot. And so he was having to take care of her and the child and work full times and and very quickly and suddenly and unexpectedly his health collapsed and he also passed away. And so here's a human being who in a period of like 10 years she moved from her country of origin. She lost two children. She lost her husband. She was separated from her parents. And she was plummeted into inconsolable grief. And she had a clarity that the way out was through meditation. That that was the only thing that had any relevance and meaning for her. So, why am I sharing this story? I'm sharing this story because I met her. And one of the characteristics about Deepama that I heard about when I was first introduced to the Dhamma was her phenomenal realization and her unbelievable development of psychic power. Um, She had phenomenal capacity. 
And it's, it's rare in this world to know somebody who is that attained and to have experience with them. But the thing, the quality that, that stood out with like huge impact was her, her loving, was her capacity to love, was her capacity to see people for who they were and to embrace them in a way that up until that point I had never knew was possible. It was like being in this vast, still, quiet ocean. And the sense of being seen was so extraordinary. And yet, rather than it was seen and being judgmental, it was seen and being completely embraced and cared for and loved. So that kind of love, I, I find is very rare. That ability to see somebody so deeply and yet be so affectionate and caring. So one of the things that I loved is, you know, I was, I visited, not for very long, just for a couple weeks, her place. We were staying in Calcutta. We were staying at the Mahabodhi Society in, in Calcutta, and we would walk across town, and we would go up the stairs into her little apartment, which was this tiny little apartment, and we would just sit quietly with her. And then uh, she would give a little talk and her, her daughter would translate into English. And then when we would leave, she would give us a blessing. And the way she would give us a blessing is she'd put her tiny little hands on her head and she'd chant and she'd blow. And it felt like being under this huge waterfall of love, like this infinite waterfall of love. And that there was a way of, of feeling like of of being washed clean and made whole and coming home all somehow in the same time. This kind of love is a very, very different kind of love than a pink marshmallow goo that you spread on top of reality with this lip service of what kindness is about. And it's not something that can be faked, but it's something that completely can be felt. It can be known. We can experience that. So the way to bring truth and love and wisdom into the world for me, has been to start where I'm at and notice what's here. And when I'm starting where I'm at and noticing what's here, then I have to be attentive to what's happening in my own body. I have to feel my own body. I have to register the level of tension, the resistance, the contraction, the, the leaning forward, the leaning back, not just as a posture, 
but as a physiological embodiment of a psychological response. And when I am able to attune to what's happening, then what happens for me is that there's a capacity to lean into the knowing of what's happening. And as I'm leaning into the knowing of what's happening, simultaneously there's more capacity to respond to what's happening. So awareness brings capacity to respond. Now, I want to pause and tell you about um, some experiences that I have in nature and then come back and see where we're at with all of this. When I was in... um, I lived in... a forest hermitage in, in a national park in Australia for just under two years. And when I was, I mean, I've always been somebody who's loved nature, but I was born in Los Angeles, you know. I, I didn't actually grow up with nature. I grew up with, in a concrete jungle, you know. And so as much as I had this, this idea that I loved nature, I was actually quite inexperienced with what that meant. And so I went to Australia and I was living in this forest hermitage and I was in a national park and around the national park were three other national parks so there was a million acres of wilderness that I was in the middle of in a country that was foreign to me with animals and plants and birds that were foreign to me and I was just interested to see what was going to unfold. And when I first got there, I was naturally a little bit apprehensive. And I think part of my apprehension was because I had heard that on the property were some of the most poisonous snakes that existed in the world. (laughs) So this was just a small piece of information that was kind of there. And I had no idea where they lived or what happened to them or how you found them or if they'd come after you or any of those things. So there was this kind of like non-specific anxiety about just this fear that if you stepped off the path, there was going to be something that was going to jump out and kind of get you. You know, it was going to eat you. It was going to bite you. It was going to gobble you up. And I learned that the snakes were not like that at all. In fact, it took months before I saw a snake. And when I finally did see a snake, it was a boa constrictor that was sleeping just across the path. It was like she was having a, like a, a, a sun, sunny nap in all of her regal glory. And I walked up on, on her and she was spectacularly beautiful. And I just stopped and I looked at her for ages and I felt so privileged to see the snake. And then I ran back to the library and I looked it up to find out, you know, what she was and what her name was and, you know, and all the rest of that. And it turned out she was a, a boa. So she wasn't poisonous. She woke up eventually and noticed that I was there and just very quietly moved away. You know, just this very sweet kind of thing. So when I first got to Australia, I was apprehensive. And then I began to get a feeling for the, the sense of well-being and the safety that I felt there. And 
And so it softened from me feeling like I was anxious to me feeling like I was safe. And then I started to notice something started shifting, which was that I, I had the feeling that the land around me was embracing me in the way, you know, when you go to grandmother's house and she bundles you up and she just gives you cuddles and kisses and she's absolutely delighted to see you. I started to feel that from the land, that the land was just delighted that I was there. Now, I have always, since I was a child, loved being in nature, but I had never experienced that sense of the feeling of delight from the land that I was there. And because of that feeling of welcome, I started to relax. And as I started to relax, I got a little bit more courageous of walking off the path and noticing that it wasn't the case that there were these scary things that would jump out from the bush and come and eat me alive. And I got a little bit more fearless about walking through the wilderness and exploring and getting to know things. And during that time I was living in the bush, I was there with a, a Zen, Korean Zen nun. Now, the Zen tradition does determinations in a way that makes the rest of the Buddhist community look like, I'm not sure what, but they're phenomenal. And she was describing to me a practice that she had intended to do, a tiger practice, where you sit up and you don't lie down, and you intend not to sleep for a certain period of time. So she was going to do this for 10 days, and did I want to join her? (laughs) And, you know, one of the things about being a monastic is that we get used to doing things that are insane. (laughs) And that's just kind of normal, you know? And so there was something about this that I found really compelling. Now... Subcontext was is that part of the reason why I was going there was because I wasn't well. I had chronic fatigue syndrome. And one of the greatest stressors of chronic fatigue syndrome is not sleeping. So I knew that if I wasn't really careful with this, I was setting myself up for a relapse that might take six months to a year to recover. So if I was going to play, I had to play with a kind of real clarity I couldn't push. I couldn't push... I couldn't muscle my way through this. Anyway, so we started this tiger practice, and you're up all the time because you're not sleeping. And so outside the meditation hall was an ant hill. Now, I come from Los Angeles. I don't know about ant hills, okay? So the ant hill was spilling over onto the path. Now, I'm bright, and I think the path is for the people, and the ant hill is spilling onto the path, so I will just gently encourage the anthill to relocate. <laughs> you know, this, this is kind. This is my kindness. I'm going to help. I'm going to do something that's kind. So I got the broom, and I started sweeping, and I started, you know, around the edge of the anthill, and I come closer into the anthill, and I'm very close to the anthill, and I'm at the base of the anthill, and there's this huge kind of thing that happens. The anthill mobilizes and there's the search, destroy, and eat alive kind of mobilization. The anthill is coming right towards me and they are not happy. (laughs) So 
even though I'm from L.A., I do have the capacity to learn quickly. So <laughs> I realized that maybe it wasn't my decision as to whether the anthill should be here and that I actually wasn't being kind. I was actually scaring them very much. So I went and I put the broom against the building and I came back in thinking, okay, so I made a mistake. I need to come back in with loving kindness. Now, this is something that only somebody who grows up in the city would try. Somebody who grew up in the bush of Australia would not walk into a charging anthill thinking that they could bring loving kindness and help them calm down. Okay. So... I had six feet to get to the edge of the building and six feet to walk back into the anthill with my new found loving kindness that I was going to generate and bestow upon the 10,000 ants that were charging towards me. And not a single one bit me. Not one. Not one ant bit me. And then I realized, after what I'd done, both what an idiot and how completely amazing what had happened. These ants completely got the difference between the intention, which I didn't think was harmful, but they totally registered as harmful. And then when my mind changed, they completely picked it up. So I was living in a little kuti, which was like the the dimensions of the kuti was about six feet wide and about seven feet long. And I lived in that kuti for just under two years. I love that kuti. I love that kuti. Spectacular kuti. I was so happy there. And right outside the kuti was a Cadillac walking meditation path. Cadillac because it was perfectly flat, it was completely wide, it had soft silky sand, it was in the right direction, and the only thing that I saw around me was this beautiful, beautiful bush. You know, angophora trees, eucalyptus trees, rocks, it was just fabulous, beautiful. So I would walk on my walking path, and my walking path connected to another path, and this other path went to the library and then down to where the meditation hall was and then down to where the kitchen was and then down to where the rest of the community were. And on the path that connected my path to where the kitchen was was another ant hill, but that ant hill was made out of bull ants. And bull ants are about an inch and a half long and they've got these prongs in their front which look like pitchforks. And you learn really quickly when you're in Australia about bull ants because if you get bitten by one, it swells up to be like the size of half of a golf ball and it hurts like a way that makes you use all of the words that you're not supposed to use. And then for another week, it itches in a way that makes you use even worse words. Okay? Mm. And so you learn really quickly about the bull ants. And part of the reason why you learn really quickly about the bull ants is because they're incredibly protective, aggressive, and territorial. So it doesn't matter if you're five feet tall or six feet tall or eight feet tall or ten feet tall. They will come after you if you are in their territory. They are not intimidated by our size. It is their territory, and you have got to keep clear. But that was when I was walking on their path. 
When I was walking on my path, they would come on forays to my path all the time, checking out for bugs and looking to grab dead things to bring it back into their nest to eat. And I would walk on that path night and day. I would walk barefoot all the time. I would walk with my eyes closed. I would walk backwards. When they were on my path, they stayed out of my way. They had a natural sense of respect. They were not confused about when they needed to take care that they were in somebody else's space and when it was their space. I was totally gobsmacked. An ant lives with respect. So I thought, if an ant lives with respect, what would happen if I tried living with respect? What would happen if rather than requiring or demanding that somebody fulfilled my image of what I thought they needed to fulfill before I dished out the respect, if I just lived with respect? What would happen if I related to myself and the things that arose with respect? rather than only gave respect when I felt like what I was feeling was deemed worthy of being able to give respect. So the combination of the welcome of the land and this radical teaching that I received from the ants, my just having taken the Bodhisattva vows with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, being in this place where I was feeling more and more and more, not like a lump, separate, in a friendly environment, but like nature, in nature. And the combination of the change in attitude of the way I was relating to what was going on was part of this shift in what was happening around me. Nature, in nature, doesn't have a boundary. There isn't an inside nature and an outside nature. There isn't a nature that belongs and a nature that doesn't belong. There is simply just nature. And when there is simply just nature, there's no place where the love does not flow. It flowed internally as well as externally. It flowed into the trees, into the rocks, into the goannas, into the snakes, into the birds. It just flowed. And I wasn't exempted from that flow. I was part of that flow. I was the vehicle. I was the recipient. And it was happening by being in relationship with nature. 
So nature, the land, the sense of welcome, showed me how to live in relationship where there's just flow. And that gave me a really powerful reference point about what does it feel like to love? What does it feel like to love where there are no boundaries? Where there aren't some people that you love and some people that you feel crabby about? What is it like just to love? And to let that love not only flow through you, but then be come back in the, in the way in which I felt welcomed. The way of bringing truth and love and wisdom into the world is to start where we are, where we are. When I was in that hermitage in the bush, the change of practice was a catalyst for being able to see all kinds of layers that I had never had access to before. Layers of anger, layers of fear and to my total surprise this kind of cesspit of self-hatred which because I had a bright smile on my face and a capacity to be competent I had no idea existed to allow it to know it to receive it and to know that that wasn't the essence of who I was. One of the things that was quite disorganizing for me was that as a Theravadan Buddhist nun, I had an idea about what that meant. And it didn't mean having nature as my teacher. It meant other things. So here I was in this context where nature was very clearly my teacher. 
And I felt doubt arising, like, well, maybe I should disrobe and go hang out with the aborigines, or maybe I should become a Jungian analyst, or maybe I should disrobe and reordain and become Tibetan, because they're pretty far out and they do all this stuff with, 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 with drums and incense, and they, have, they know about the spirits and the different realms, and they have pujas for them. Maybe I should go hang out with them. And I remember after spending time in this wilderness with a whole vast array of rich and wonderful experiences, I was feeling really concerned that maybe I wasn't suitable to be a Theravadan Buddhist nun. So I made an effort to go see one of the elders of our community. And I spilled my guts. I told them all of these things that had happened. You know, the the climbing the sacred mountain, the communion with the land, the way in which I was receiving instructions from the, from the, from the clouds and from the presentation of, the, of what I saw in front of me and how that was a mirror for my mind. With this kind of sense of like I've done something wrong, you know, and that I'm going to be castigated or punished or somehow ostracized because this is not Theravadan fair. You don't do this as a Theravadan pull up your bootstraps, get on with it, and keep going. But don't do that. And I didn't get castigated. I got a lot of curiosity and delight that this had been my experience. And so I thought, okay, so this is lovely and affirming, but he's not the big Ajahn. I have to go speak to the big Ajahn and really get clarification from the big Ajahn that I'm okay, because I'm not sure. I'm really not sure this is okay. So I went and I found Ajahn Sumedho and I did the same thing. I told him the whole thing of everything that I'd been through. You know, again, thinking that he's going to be disgruntled, disappointed. He's not going to be appreciative. He's going to think, I have to leave. And I remember what he said. He said to me, you can make a problem out of this if you want to. And he said it three times. You can make a problem out of this if you want to. He said, what happens when the sense of self gets out of the way is what you're describing. This is the result. You can make a problem out of it if you want to. So identity and form and context are really important for us as people. And we use that both to help us get some ground and we use that to divide and separate and isolate and ostracize. We do that for ourselves and we do that to each other. When we're using identity as a way to separate and to divide, there's a very definitive limit to how much love can flow. Because we've made lines and boxes and categories and we have defined there's an in and an out. And yet the reality is is that human beings, we need to belong and that as communities we need to have structure and that it's actually is skillful to know, you know, who fits into a community and who 
is maybe not so suitable to be in a community. Or maybe they need to be in community with different agreements. And so we're having to navigate the reality of our conditioned world with the deep and profound insight that comes from the unconditioned and having access to that. But when we grab hold of identity in a way that causes us to pull in and back and limits love from flowing, to me that's a red flag. What's happening here? What's going on? What is this about? When I left England and I came back to the United States, it was really quite a um, quite significant transition. I had been in community for 20 years, supported, and then all of a sudden I was in North America in a town that uh, wasn't really particularly supportive. And on my own, trying to figure a lot of things out and trying to understand some of the, what had happened, you know, what, what had happened, why did this happen? And right near where I live is this wonderful place called the Garden of the Gods, which is an ancient, well, it's a 160 million year old rock formation that's been a sacred site for the Native American Indians for thousands and thousands of years. And because I have a resonance with nature, I can feel places that are powerful and feel very well there. And so, you know, with all of this doubt and uncertainty, and can I, and can I not, and is it going to be possible, and can I make this work, and should I, or should I not, I would just go to the rocks. And I'd press my back into the rocks and I'd let them hold me and receive everything. The fear, the confusion, the anger, the uncertainty, the doubt, the not knowing. And allowing the rocks to receive everything. Mind would melt, body would melt, heart would open. And what was left was awareness and love. And when there's awareness and love, there was no problem. The fear wasn't a problem. The feelings weren't a problem. The uncertainty wasn't a problem. Because there was no resistance to any of it. And there was a sense of being held in something that was vast and huge and profoundly nourishing and seeing that awareness and love is in fact the essence of everything. It's not only the essence of Buddhists or Democrats or peace activists. It's the essence of everything. everyone, everywhere, every place. When I know that, when I embody that, 
when I act from the knowing of that, to me that's a very clear manifestation of being truth and love and wisdom into the world. And it doesn't matter if I'm drinking a glass of water or picking up a cigarette butt on the ground that somebody has discarded or talking to a stranger or pulling the ears of the dogs that I see. It's not dependent on the action because it's a part of being. Maybe that's enough for now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.